According to Doomsday Prophet Harold Camping, May the 21st, 2011 was supposed to be a big day. Camping predicted that Jesus would return for his church and those who remain would be plunged into terrible judgments. In fact, Camping's organization spent millions of dollars on billboards warning people to sell all their belongings and prepare for the coming apocalypse. Of course, May the 21st came and went. Jesus didn't return, and the church remained earthbound. Harold Camping's reaction was to recalibrate. He claimed that his math was off. The real date was October 21st. But on October 22nd, Camping once again had been proven wrong. You know, little has been heard from Harold Camping since. But when he speaks up, and I'm sure he will, he'll probably issue another erroneous date. In fact, since 1978, this same Harold Camping, he set a date for the rapture 12 different times. 12 different dates. <laughs> the man is an incurable date setter with gullible followers. The guy's 0 for 12. I mean, even a weatherman gets it right occasionally. Camping has proven one thing, that he's a false prophet. Of course, what Camping did manage to do was provide fodder for the skeptics and for the late-night talk show hosts to both mock him and the notion of a rapture. On October 25th, David Letterman had his top ten Harold Camping excuses. I won't read them. They were terrible. Not as good as my top ten list. Time Magazine named Camping one of its top ten Halloween costumes for the year. One blogger wrote, October 21st, day for jokes, not judgment. Sadly, all Christians end up with a black eye whenever a knucklehead sets a date. I mean, any biblically literate person should have known that camping was off his rocker. In Mark chapter 13, verse 32, none other than our Lord Jesus, speaking of his coming, told his disciples of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Not even Jesus himself, while on earth, knew the exact day that he would return. Evidently, all the date setters presumed to know more than Jesus. I like the billboard that appeared right after the camping debacle. <laughs> that was awkward. And then it quotes Jesus, no one knows the day or the hour. Hey, before you talk about his return, shouldn't you listen to Jesus and what he has to say about it? And yet Harold Camping isn't the first person to predict a date for the rapture and the coming judgment. Church history is full of similar culprits. Tragically, you can go all the way back to the early church as far back as the second century to find ignorant people making the same arrogant mistakes. You know, it's interesting how our text this morning begins, chapter 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. You know, throughout Paul's letters, there are four subjects in which he encourages us not to be ignorant. Romans 11, verse 25, he says he doesn't want us to be ignorant of God's plan for the Jews. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1 reads, Now concerning spiritual gifts, I do not want you to be ignorant. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8, 
exhorts us not to be ignorant on the redeeming role of suffering in a believer's life. And now here, he says, don't be ignorant of the rapture. Don't be ill-informed about God's plan for Israel, about spiritual gifts, about the role of suffering, and about the rapture. And yet, 2,000 years later, isn't it ironic? There's more ignorance over those four doctrines than there are any others in the New Testament. That's why I've entitled this morning's study, What's Up with the Rapture? For despite camping's bad PR and the comedian's sacrilegious scoffing and all the other ridicule that's been heaped on the doctrine of the rapture down through the centuries, understand, it is still a real event predicted and spoken of in the Scriptures. One day, Jesus is coming back to airlift His church from planet Earth. You can laugh about it, you can scoff at it, you can mock at it, but friend, it's going to happen. The key passages that deal with the rapture of the church include 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 3 and 4, Luke 17, John 14, even Isaiah 26, but the most direct teaching on the rapture is found right here in this morning's text, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and that's what we're going to tackle today. I hope you've noticed by now that each of the chapters here in 1 Thessalonians, they end with a reference to the last days and the coming of the Lord Jesus. It seems that even in the first century, even among new believers like the Thessalonians, this was a hot topic in the church. You know, I've talked to Christians who consider rapture watching a distraction. They see it as a peripheral issue at best, at worst, an embarrassing hobby horse. Yet the believers in Thessalonica and in all the early church, they were on the edge of their seat. They lived their lives in anticipation of the return of Jesus. The New Testament speaks of the return of our Lord more than it does creation more than the triune nature of God, more than even the resurrection. We're given far more detail on how Jesus will come again than we are on how He came the first time. You see, the Christians of the early church held the belief that they would not taste death. In John 14, Jesus is a groom. His church is the bride. He leaves to prepare for her a place. And when He's finished... He obligates himself to return and grab his bride and escort her into his chambers. New Testament believers rightly understood that they weren't looking for the undertaker. They were looking for the upper taker. And that's how God wants every generation of Christians to live. As if we could be the last. A part of following Jesus is being ready for his return. Notice how Paul, what he writes here in verse 13, he says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now, as we've noted, Paul spent just a few weeks in Thessalonica before his enemies ran him out of town. Paul must have taught them a cram course in Christianity. He made his time count. But you know, there's some truths that a new believer can digest, can't digest in a short period of time. I mean, he can get overloaded. There, there were some vital strategic issues that Paul had not developed in these believers' minds. And thus, when Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica, he tells him to bring back a report. 
inquire about their spiritual welfare and report back to me what they might lack. That's what Timothy did. And he had detected some holes in their understanding of certain Bible doctrines. According to chapter 3, verse 10, Paul's goal was to fill up what was lacking in their faith. And one of the deficiencies in their knowledge involved Jesus' return. Particularly, what happens to believers who die before He comes back? This was the issue in verse 13. Notice two truths from verse 13. First, Paul speaks of the unbelieving world of the first century as those who have no hope. You see, the Roman belief in the afterlife was vague at best. The most pleasant scenario among the pagans was that death was a transport into a murky, shadowy, uncertain netherworld. Often they'd place a coin in a deceased person's mouth to supply them ferry passage over the river Styx. A poet wrote, Hopes are among the living. The dead are without hope. You see, the missing ingredient in Greco-Roman religion became the linchpin for Christianity. Jesus' own resurrection spawned the belief that all who follow Him will be resurrected as well. This idea of resurrection was foreign to a pagan mindset. You see, for starters, the Greeks had a flawed view of the human body. It wasn't worth resurrecting in their minds. They considered the human body evil, a prison for the soul. Eternal bliss was for the spirit to escape from the body. Whereas Jesus had an opposite approach. He dignified the human anatomy. You remember when God became a man, He took on a human body. While among us, Jesus healed fevers. And He crossed crippled legs to walk. And He fed hungry stomachs. He cared not just for the souls of men, but He cared for our bodies as well. For the Greek, salvation was an escape from the body. But for the Christian, salvation involves the resurrection of our bodies. You see, Jesus defeated mankind's arch enemy, death. The power of Jesus eventually redeems everything that sin has spoiled, including these all worn out, broken down bodies. The Greeks could concede the existence of, of some spirit world. But to overcome death in the real, tangible world, this was a miracle they refused to believe. You recall in Acts 17... The Athenian philosophers, they tracked with Paul's sermon until he mentioned the resurrection. That was too much for Roman pragmatism. And yet this is Christianity's claim. This is what sets us apart from all other religions. Christianity claims one bold miracle called the resurrection. Notice the second truth from verse 13. Dead believers were said to have fallen asleep. Their flesh, and blood, 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 their flesh and blood body will one day rise again, but for the moment their body was taking a nap. It was asleep. This was how Jesus spoke of Lazarus. In John chapter 11, verse 11, He said, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. At the time, Lazarus had been dead four days. But Jesus said he was asleep. The New Testament uses the idiom of sleep for deceased believers. Their unconsciousness or the unconsciousness of their body is a temporary condition like sleep. 
This is why Christians often bury their dead in cemeteries. The Latin word cemetery means dormitory or sleeping place. The bodies of Christian believers are buried to await the day when Jesus will return and resurrect them from the dead. You see, the Christian tradition of burial highlights the dignity that Jesus bestowed on the human body. It's an attempt to affirm our hope in the resurrection. On the other hand, I don't really believe there's anything wrong or unbiblical about cremation. It simply does in 20 minutes what nature accomplishes in 20 years. I mean, it's still dust to dust. And even if you're cremated and your ashes are sprinkled out over Stone Mountain, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead will locate your molecules and resurrect your body. The bodies of all believers, cremated or not, are merely asleep. But what about our spirit? What happens to the spirit when the body dies? Does it sleep too? Does it fall into some kind of suspended animation? You know, some denominations, they teach this doctrine. They call it soul sleep. But verse 14 answers the question. Paul says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. When Jesus returns, Paul says that He brings with Him those whose bodies sleep in Jesus. Apparently, when a believer dies, our spirit leaves our body and enters into heaven. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, when Paul spoke of his impending death, he said that he would love to depart and be with Christ. This is what Paul calls death in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. When I die, my spirit immediately exits my body and goes to be with Jesus. Instantly, my sorrow turns to joy. It's not my spirit that snoozes. My spirit is alive and aware in the presence of Jesus. It's my body that falls asleep. This means that when Jesus returns, He's not coming for the spirits of those who died beforehand. They're already in heaven. No, when He returns, He brings those spirits with Him to rejoin the body that He resurrects at that time. Understand, when the return of Jesus, and understand what the return of Jesus and the resurrection of the body meant to these early Christians. This was their moment of vindication. This is what they looked forward. This was their hope. You see, these people walked by faith. They trusted a God who was invisible. They turned down earthly pleasures for blessings that were intangible. They endured persecution for a reward that was eternal. They were strangers and aliens in their own hometown because they longed for a land that was spiritual. And everybody thought they were crazy for it. They were persecuted. You see, the return of Jesus was their opportunity to prove their sanity. When Jesus returned, everyone would finally see that what they had believed all along was true. It was real. It was the believer's moment of victory and vindication. And this is what brought up the question in the minds of the Thessalonians. If I die before Jesus returns, am I going to miss out on my day in the sun? 
Am I going to miss out on my day to finally shine and vindicate what I've believed? Paul answers, absolutely not. Verse 15 reads, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. In other words, those who are alive at the rapture have no advantage over those who've died beforehand. And he tells us why. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who died before the Lord's return, whose bodies are now asleep in the ground, they'll get a head start. Those bodies will rise first. They'll be vindicated. They'll enjoy victory. Why did the dead in Christ rise first? Well, it's simple. They got six feet further to go. But they'll rise. Imagine all over the world, cemeteries will be vacated. Tombstones will topple over. Concrete vaults will open. Decomposed bodies will spring to life again. In addition, urns will empty. Cremated ashes will rise from the ground. Molecules will swirl together. Bodies will reassemble in midair. A metamorphosis will take place. A miracle of resurrection for all the world to see. Every believer from every age will celebrate our victory day. Like Jesus, we will all be resurrected. And if you think this will be a thrill for the dead in Christ, imagine what this will be like for those believers who are alive and on the earth at the time. Understand, there is a generation of Christians who will never die. The Bible predicts it. When the Lord returns, He'll snatch away all those who belong to Him. Notice again verse 16. Here's a little rapture play-by-play. Paul tells us how it's going to happen. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Notice first, the Lord Himself will descend from heaven. Jesus isn't going to send a representative. He's not going to send a chauffeur to bring you home. He's going to descend Himself. According to John 14, Jesus left this earth to prepare for us some eternal digs. And what a place it must be. You know, this world's a pretty beautiful place. Drive up in North Georgia on a fall afternoon and see the beautiful colors. It's a gorgeous place, but this world was meant to be temporary. In fact, it took God just six days to create it. But Jesus has been working on heaven for 2,000 years. Imagine what heaven's going to be like. The beauty will be stunning. It's going to blow our minds. When it's time, when He's prepared us a place, the Lord Himself will descend from heaven. And then second, Paul says the Lord will descend with a shout. The Greek word translated shout here is a military term. It means to bark an order. Like a drill sergeant barking at his troops. Like a quarterback on the line of scrimmage. 898! Blue 45! Didn't know I could still do that, did you? 
When the rapture occurs, Jesus will bark out the snap count. And on hut, every Christian's corpse will rise from the grave. Nobody will be all sides. Recall in Luke chapter 11, verse 43, Jesus stood outside Lazarus' tomb and he shouted, Lazarus, come forth. And it's been well noted, if Jesus had not said Lazarus, every corpse in the graveyard would have sprang to its feet. Well, on this day, Jesus is going to leave off Lazarus. And he's going to command all the saints from all the ages to rise. And then third, we'll hear the voice of an archangel. Now, I've never heard the voice of an archangel, so this is going to be new for me. You know, angels announce Jesus' first coming in the fields outside of Bethlehem. Apparently, their shouts will ring out again all around the world when Jesus returns for His church. And I believe these voices will be audible. I'm expecting to know when the rapture occurs, I'm going to hear Jesus shout, and then I'm going to hear the voice of an archangel. You know, every year on the third Saturday in June, Spivey's Corner, North Carolina, hosts the National Hollering Contest. People come from all over the country to see who can holler the loudest. They say that hollering is the world's oldest form of communication. Well, on that day when Jesus returns for His church, He's going to win the hollering contest hands down. For suddenly, He's going to belt out a shout like a cowboy on a roundup. yeah He's going to holler loud enough for everybody on earth to hear Him. <laughs> well, you go clap when He does it. You know, I personally believe that this is going to be an emotional moment for Jesus. This is going to be an emotional release for Him. All of His pent-up feelings are suddenly going to be vented. Imagine, the Savior loved you enough to die in your place but he's yet to have the chance to tell you that face to face. And when he gets the order to fetch his bride, he's going to come hollering. Today, Christians are guided by the still small voice of the Holy Spirit, but when we leave this world, we're going to be called home with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. In ancient times, trumpets were used to rally the troops and assemble the community, and begin special festivities. A trumpet blast even announced the arrival of a special dignitary, and all these functions will be in operation when the rapture trumpet sounds. Did you know every year Jews celebrate their new year with a blast of a trumpet? The feast is called Rosh Hashanah. It means the Feast of Trumpets. It began, begins when the priest blows his ram's horn or his shofar. It signals to the workers out in the fields that it's time to lay down their tools and leave the harvest and come up together to the temple to worship God. And this is exactly what the rapture means to us. When the trumpet, when the shofar sounds, the church's great harvest of souls will have ended and will be invited to come up together to the heavenly temple to worship our Lord Jesus forever. Whenever I teach on the rapture, I like to bring my ram's horn with me. I'm really pretty good at this. 
I got it while I was in Israel. And, and I've learned over the years how to, how to play it and how to blow out the blast and all. And so I thought this morning I, I, would, show, I, mean, I would demonstrate just a little bit about uh, my shofar playing abilities. And so this morning I thought I'd just give you a little, little test here. You ready? There you have it. You know, I'm sure that, that Jesus will be a better shofar player than I am. But man, when you hear the blast, that's your signal. That's when you know we're ready to blast off. I'll never forget one night many years ago. We were meeting over on Main Street there in the city of Stone Mountain. and I just finished up a, a study on Bible prophecy. And we were waiting on the Lord in prayer, just kind of worshiping the Lord quietly. And off in the distance, I heard this whistle. I thought, this is it! That's the trumpet! And, and I can remember sitting there on the, on the edge of the stage, and I was just waiting for my feet to lift off the ground. And, and I was looking at my hands, waiting for them to dematerialize, you know, right in front of my eyes. And then I heard the rumbling of the train going down the train tracks. Man, what a letdown. I was ready for a lift off. Instead, I got a letdown. And yet, this is the kind of expectancy we need to exhibit. Where every stray sound, where every unidentifiable noise causes us to wonder if this is the moment when we're going to see Jesus. Horatio Bonar, he once put it, each night as I draw the curtains, I look up at the night sky and say, perhaps tonight, Lord. And each morning when I see the dawning of a new day, I look out the window, up at the sky, and say, perhaps today, Lord. Perhaps tonight, perhaps today. The Lord could come at any time. We should all live in a state of constant expectancy. And notice what the Lord does when He returns. He doesn't just descend to planet earth. You know, the rapture will be followed by great tribulation. We're going to talk about this next week in chapter 5. The world will be judged for its unbelief. And at the end of the judgment, Jesus will return to terra firma. He'll touch down to reign and rule and establish His kingdom. But at the rapture, He doesn't touch down. He stops in the clouds. He comes in the clouds. And at that time, Jesus will perform His greatest miracle. While on earth, Jesus did many miracles. Jesus continues to do miracles today. But when Jesus comes in the clouds, when He returns, He will perform His greatest miracle of all. Verse 17 tells us, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The Greek word translated caught up is harpazo. You know, some skeptics like to point out that the word rapture isn't even in the Bible. Well, that's true unless you're reading a Latin Bible. Because in Latin, harpazo gets translated raptus. Harpazo means to snatch away or to seize violently. Jesus comes in the clouds. And He snatches us up. We're here one second and we're gone the next. We're standing in His presence. 
Won't that be glorious? One minute you're cooking dinner. The next minute you're in His presence. One second you're mowing the lawn. The next second you're in His presence. What, a, what an incredible thing. He's going to snatch us up. You, you've seen a hesitating yo-yo? The, the, the guy throws his yo-yo down. It just spins on the end of the string. And then all of a sudden he turns his hand over and he just moves his hand up and the yo-yo pops back up into his hand. That's what Jesus is going to do with all you yo-yos. He's just going to snatch you up. Or, or perhaps you play jacks. You bounce a rubber ball and then you see how many jacks you can pick up in your hand before you catch it. Well, Jesus is also going to play jacks. He's going to snatch up the jacks and the jills and the bills and the bobs and the sous and the sows. He's going to snatch us up. You know, I used to think the rapture would be this slow kind of liftoff. You know, that we would rise a few inches off the ground and then we'd sail past treetops and birds and dodge power lines and airplanes and as we were just kind of ascending up through the clouds. But I no longer believe that that's going to, how it's going to happen. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 51 tells us this. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Notice though, it all happens in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. We'll be transformed and snatched away in a nanosecond. How fast is a twinkle? Scientists compute that the shutter speed of the human eye is about one-fiftieth of a second. But that's a blink. Jesus is going to transform us in a mere twinkle. That's faster than a blink. The rapture is going to make the McDonald's drive through seem like an eternity. I hate to say it, but I think Star Trek may have had this right. Jesus is going to beam us up. Perhaps we'll just dematerialize and then we'll reappear in heaven enjoying a perfect body. Won't that be cool? Reminds me of the old country fella. He lived out on the farm and one day he decided he and his family would visit the big city. The old farmer, he dropped his wife off at the mall while he and his son walked into the bank. When he walked into this busy bank, he saw this huge metal box out in the center of the room. He had no idea it was the vault, but he was impressed with its size and he wondered about its purpose. Soon an older female lady, she, a teller, she walked into the vault. She was carrying a, a tray of money. Well, the door shut behind her. A few seconds later, the doors opened again and out walked this young, beautiful blonde carrying a tray of money. Well, with a gleam in his eye, the old man, he turned to his son and he said, Wait right here, boy. I'm going to go get your mom and run her through that thing. I'm glad my wife was laughing. She's the after. She was the after example, my wife. At the rapture, our bodies will be changed. We'll get brand new, glorified bodies. We'll be the envy of the most skilled plastic surgeon. You will be. I will be. Our bodies will have an entirely new molecular structure. They'll be the same body. 
but they'll be new and transformed and uncontaminated by sin, and they'll have new capacities. No longer will our bodies be subject to disease or limited by time and space. Our bodies will have the same capabilities Jesus enjoyed after He rose from the dead. These corruptible bodies must put on incorruptibility. And think of the effect the rapture will have on the world at large. You know, in Matthew 24, verse 40 and 41, Jesus says, Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Imagine millions of Christians all over the world suddenly vanish. A mass exodus of believers. The saints will split. A secretary goes to run an errand and she never comes back. Four people get into the elevator. Only three get off. I heard of a youth group that staged a rapture. Staged a rapture in order to fool their unsuspecting leader. They were at this camp together and he had gone into town to run some errands. Well, when he returned, the place was vacated. Piles of clothes kind of laid around on the ground as if the folks wearing them had just sort of passed through them. An empty motorboat was circling around in the lake. An unattended dinner was waiting in the kitchen. A well-timed phone call added to the effect. The voice on the other end shouted, What's happening? Everybody's missing over here. The director later admitted, Wow, it really shook me up. Hey, one day we'll see similar circumstances, but it will be no joke. Think of the disasters that will be caused by unpiloted cars and trucks and planes. I always chuckle when I see that bumper sticker, warning, in case of the rapture, this car will be unmanned. But it'll be low laughing matter when the world is reeling from panic and mayhem and disasters. And I'm sure the scoffers will come up with all kinds of interesting explanations for all the missing people. Oh, it was an alien abduction. You can hear it now. And yet a lot of folks who we've warned ahead of time will be forced in that day to do some serious thinking. Here's a poem that says it well. I think of times as the night draws near of an old house on a hill, of a yard all wide and grassy where the children played at will. When deep night at last came down, hushing the merry din, mother would look around and ask, are all the children in? I wonder if when those shadows fall on the last short earthly day, when we say goodbye to the world outside, all tired of our childish play, when we meet the lover of our souls who died to save us from our sin, will we hear him ask, as our mother did, are all the children in? I believe that's what Jesus will ask just before he returns for his church. He'll turn to the Father and he'll ask him, are all the children in? I love the last line of verse 17. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Oh, wow. You know, I can recall spending all day outside playing, running through the neighborhood, but there was something very comforting about resting in my own house that night. Hey, this world can be a weary, fearful, painful place, but always remember it's just temporary. Only our final destination is permanent, and Jesus calls it paradise. I love the promise at the end of Psalm 16. In the Lord's presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Verse 18 tells us, 
Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You know, Romans 11 verse 25 uses interesting language. There Paul speaks of the fullness of the Gentiles. The terminology marks a turning point in God's prophetic plan. Apparently, there is a set number of Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles, who will come to Christ before God turns His attention again to Israel. And when the last Gentile enters into God's family, I believe the Father will turn to the Son and He'll say, Go get them. All the children are in. It always excites me to think that the last lone holdout could be with us here in this room this morning. If that's you, man, what are you waiting on? Please, let us all go to heaven. We want to be raptured. I hope you'll get on the stick and give your life to Jesus today. What Jesus promises us is far better than anything this world can offer. Hey, let me close by recalling two phrases from Paul's words in verse 15. Notice first he writes, For this, <coughs> excuse me, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. You know, when Paul wrote his letters, I don't know how cognizant he always was that he was pinning sacred scripture. It's kind of open for debate. I know he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 verse 13. He says, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus in Troas. Now I imagine that was more motivated by the cold around him than the spirit within him. It seems reasonable that though Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wasn't always conscious of that fact, except here. For when it came to the rapture, notice he was adamant. He spoke by the word of the Lord. My point is, the return of Jesus, the rapture of the church, friend, these are big deals to God. And these doctrines need to be big deals to us. Martin Luther used to say, there are only two days on my calendar, today and that day. Hey, today will matter more if we live it in light of that day. And notice the other statement Paul makes in verse 15. As he speaks of the rapture, he fully expects to participate. Paul writes, that we who are alive, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. Now Paul was writing in the first half of the first century. And yet Paul was fueled by the belief that he was living in the last days. Paul was counting on being one of those folks who avoided death. You know, some people might claim that Paul was duped. Or that he played the fool. Hey, that couldn't be further from the truth. It was God's intention for Paul to live as if he were in the last days. Just as it's his desire for us to also live as if we're in the last days. You see, Harold Camping isn't a false prophet for believing in the rapture or for getting excited about Jesus' return or even believing he'd experience it. He was unbiblical for claiming to know more than Jesus and setting a date. But to live a successful Christian life, we need to live every minute of every day in anticipation of the Lord's return. This is the expectation that can breed godliness. You know, I've met Christians who are apathetic and blasé about the rapture. It's as if they're afraid to get their hopes up. You better get your hopes up. Our hope is our help. 
We're going to talk more about this next week, but 1 John 3, verse 3, speaks of seeing Jesus and concludes, everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. The rapture is a purifying hope. We need it. We need to believe in it. What if my mother-in-law told me she was going to drop by my house sometime next Saturday? Just sometime next Saturday. That would be awful. That would be cruel and unusual punishment. I would think, sometime next, that's going to mess up my whole day. Tell me, when are you going to come by? Give me a time. Give me an exact time so I can be ready for you. And then when you leave, I can get on doing some other things. But to say sometime next Saturday, man, it messes up my whole day. That, that forces me not only to clean the house, but to keep it spick and span all day. The mere possibility of my mother-in-law arriving at any minute will keep me on my toes all day. And knowing Jesus can return at any moment has the same cleansing effect on you and me. If I really believe, hey, if I really, really believe that Jesus is coming back, I'll stay focused. I'll be ready. I'll avoid the shortcuts. I'll say no to the temptations. Living in light of the Lord's return is crucial to my spiritual growth. I remember 30 years ago, whenever I signed off with my friends, I'd always say, See ya! Here, there, or in the air. It reflected the expectancy I possessed. My treasure was in heaven. My hope was to see Jesus. My dream was His presence. And then I got a mortgage. Had a bunch of kids. And had to pay for college tuition. And you can kind of get caught up in the here and now. So much so that you forget that one day, any day, we could get caught up in the clouds. Let's not lose our anticipation. Has your love grown cold? Have all your friends been told, hey, the next time we meet, it might really be in the air. Father, I'm longing for the day when all the children are in because we want to go home. We'd love for it to be today. Lord, there's nothing on this earth that can rival the joys and the beauties that await us in heaven. Are all the children in? That's the question. It kind of haunts us today. Are all the children in? Maybe not. There may be a few this morning, Lord, that haven't made that decision, that haven't decided that you're worthy, that you're worth more than anything this world might offer. They haven't decided that their lives were created by you and redeemed by you and and now need to be placed back into your hands. Lord, as we wait now, and as we ponder that question, are all the children in? Lord, I pray that if there's someone here today that you're calling, that you've been tugging at their heart, 
Lord, that you've been in so many different ways letting them know you love them and that you will forgive them if they'll just receive, if they'll just accept. Lord, I pray that today could be their day. As our heads are bowed and while our eyes are closed, if there is someone here this morning that would say, Pastor Sandy, I've never given my life to Jesus, but man, I'd really like to today. I don't want to be left behind. I want to make this decision to follow Him. If there's somebody that would say, yes, I'd like to do that today, I want you just to stand up right wherever you are. Just stand right up at your seat and together we'll pray that prayer. Look, if you don't have the courage to stand up in front of a bunch of Christians whose heads are bowed and eyes are closed, no less, you're not going to have enough courage to live for Him out there in the real world. So I'm just asking, if there's somebody here today that would say, yes, I'd like to give my life to Jesus. I, all the children aren't in. I want to join, I want to join in, this, in this wonderful blessing. I'd like for you just to stand right where you are. Anybody that would stand and say, yes, Pastor Sandy, I want to pray with you this morning. I want to settle this in my life. I want you just to stand wherever you are. We'll pray together. Anybody. And wait just a few more seconds. Just, just, I just got the feeling there's somebody here this morning needs to stand, needs to receive Jesus into their life today, needs to take that first step. Anybody? Well, Lord, we thank you for your word and for this hope that we have and for this wonderful promise we've been given. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we hear the voice, the shout of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and when we rise to meet you in the sky. What a day it'll be. Lord, in the meantime, help us to live for you. Tell our friends, prepare our hearts for that wonderful day. We love you, Lord. We ask that you bless us this coming week. Help us to live this next week in light of eternity, in light of the reality that you could come at any time. Help us live ready. We pray it, Lord, in Jesus' name. All God's people said...